This is going to be the, the sixth one. And as I mentioned last week, the first four are what we would call internal qualities on how we see ourselves before God. They're internal qualities of how we see ourselves before God. And the first one is poor in spirit. And this is the opposite of self-sufficiency. Then we have those who mourn, realizing that we are totally sinful through and through. Meekness is the next one. And it's once we understand our spiritual bankruptcy and our total sinfulness, we should have an attitude of meekness as when we come before our Lord, knowing that we have absolutely nothing to offer. And the first, or the fourth one of those first four is a hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is a desire to replace our sin with his righteousness. It's getting to know the Savior, doing Bible study, it's being taking his word and putting it in us so that we can have it with us wherever we go. So those are the first four. And then last week, we did the last, uh, the, 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 the fifth one, which is blessed are the merciful. The merciful and the one we're going to be doing today, in fact, the next four, are the outworking or the fruit of the first four. So if you have the first four in you and you understand what those are, then the second four are the fruit or the outworking of that is is what does it mean that you're poor in spirit or that you mourn or meek or that you hunger and thirst after righteousness what difference does it make and the difference is what fruit do you bear because of knowing those first four so today we're going to be talking about blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God and this is the clearest of the beatitudes of what it is going to take to be able to see God. It says it point blank. If you're pure in heart, then you will see God, which we can infer the opposite. If you're not pure in heart, you're not going to see God. So it is, it is useful to be able to look at this and say, well, okay, what does that mean? What does that look like for us from day to day? So what I want to do is if you look at your outline, I'll try and follow that kind of closely so you can at least know where I'm at. The first one is the spiritual conditions of the Jews. This, these words were spoken to the Jews. So what was the spiritual condition of the Jews? And by that, we can extrapolate and say, well, what's our spiritual condition? So the first part of that spiritual condition of the Jewish people was the domination by the Pharisees. It was absolute domination by the Pharisees. And I think this is going to be a bit of a, a rehearsal and a review for you, but the the Pharisees were ritualistic, they were shallow, they were superficial, and they were all about external things and legalism. So it is a fair question to ask, and I could go on and on, but I think it's, it's kind of review for you to know that the Pharisees were very legalistic, and they're all about following the law, and I don't need to belabor that. But what is legalism? And I want to come at it from just a little bit of a different perspective. There's a guy in biblical counseling, which I've had a fair amount of training in. There's a guy by the name of Lou Perillo. You've probably never heard of him. It doesn't matter. But he has a lot of books he writes about kids and their dysfunctional kids and dysfunctional families. And he, he writes some words about being legalistic. And he calls the one set of rules, he uses two sets of rules. One set of rules are God's rules. And this is pretty simple. God's rules are not negotiable. It doesn't matter what environment you're in or who you're with. God's rules are not negotiable. Like, 
It's always a sin to lie, cheat, steal, stuff like that. Okay? They're not negotiable. But then Lou makes the distinction. He says there's such a thing as house rules. And house rules, you know, all of you have probably been parents, or you certainly are associated with parents. And house rules are stuff like hair standards, dressing code, curfews, stuff like that. But Lou makes the distinction. He says parents oftentimes make house rules of the same importance as God's rules. They're all the same. And if you violate the house rules, then you're committing sin. He said, they're not the same. He said, sometimes you can challenge house rules. Maybe not very often, but sometimes. He says, but you never can challenge God's rules, ever. They're always going to be in place. So what does that have to do with our sermon today? Well, he makes the distinction that house rules are like man-made laws. We just happen to have, how he uses, uses the phrase house rules, but it's like we have to dress a particular way if we come here. We have to act a particular way. And certainly a lot of this has to do with culture and just being polite and, you know, not just being odd. But there are God's rules, and then there's these traditions that some churches just have interwoven in their services. And I want to I give you maybe some kudos. There are some things that you can do in a church that could split a church, and that is moving stuff up here. And for, for months, we were moving stuff all over, and nobody really got that excited about it. Ho, ho, ho. There are some churches, you, start to, you took this thing and you moved it over to here, Oh my goodness, you can't do that. Did you, get, did you get approval to do that? You can't do that. Or if you took the piano and put the piano over there, that could cause this church split. And, you, and we laugh and we go, that's ridiculous. Those are house rules. They're not God's rules. They're just stuff that we kind of throw in. Or you, you can only have certain things in here and certain, and, and you guys are really easy that way. Not easy to a point of being bad, Easy to a point is it's very, you're very workable. It's very easy to get along, whereas some people, they get really antsy about this. It's the difference between being legalistic. Legalistic means this needs to stay here. I think it's a really good place that, for it to be. And you need to agree with me. That's legalism. Is I think it's a good thing to get up in the morning and read the Bible and pray and do this. I think it's a good thing. And you need to do it too. And if you don't, you're sinning. Those are house rules. Those are rules that, I, that are man-made rules. And what God says in his word in, what is it, in, in Matthew, it's a quote of, of Isaiah 29. It says, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules by men. So we have God's rules, and then we have men's rules. And it can be all kinds of stuff. It can be just anything that you can think of. It could be taking, putting something on the wall, or it could be taking something down. It's man's rules, and man likes to put those on the same level as God's rules. And I think they're good, and you don't think they're good. You're sinning. He says, no. He says, that's not the case. Home rules should carry different weight than God's rules. 
The absolutes of God's word may never be appealed to, but the house rules or man's rules may be appealed to from time to time. The second part of that, that point of domination by the Pharisees is the inability to keep the law of Moses. And because of their inability to keep the law of Moses, the Pharisees invented new laws that could be kept. They wanted to pacify their consciences because they had, some say there was over 600 different rules that the Pharisees had to obey, and they were having great difficulty obeying all of these. So to pacify their consciences, what they did was they got the leaders to agree that it was okay if they only obeyed perfectly a few of God's rules and actually God would understand. Well, then some years went by and they, they realized, well, we can't obey perfectly a few. So how about if we just obey one perfectly and God will understand? And they found out they were having trouble with that as well. And that's why we see in Mark 12, when the lawyer asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? So if I'm only going to obey one, Jesus, which one do you think is the best one? And I'll try and obey that one. So they were unable to keep the law of Moses. The Pharisees invented new laws like crazy and they thought it was really great to obey him, and here's where legalism kicks in, and you need to do it too. And if you don't do it, you're sinning. The second one is a yearning for the Messiah. We don't know this from Scripture, but it is possible that the, the multitudes that came out to see John the Baptist were partly because the people were sick and tired of listening to this failed legalistic system. It certainly is possible, but we see the, the people came out, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had a whole pile of people that came out there. And it was always the same question. It was always around, what must I do to be saved? Because the Jews were aching for a sense of forgiveness and peace, and they did not want a rabbi or a teacher with another set of rules, but they wanted a savior who would forgive them. So I'm just going to tell you really quickly just, just four different groups. You had in John 3, you had Nicodemus. He was basically, what must they do to be saved? Because I think inherently in the Jewish people they went, I can't obey this legalistic system. And if I can't obey the legalistic system, does that mean I'm not saved? So it was always the same question. What must I do to be saved? You see the multitudes in John 6 this is what shall we do that we might work the works of God? It was a different way of saying the same thing as what must I do to be saved? We see a lawyer and a young ruler. They both had the exact same question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Jews had no sense of assurance or security, and they lived under a religious system that they couldn't keep, that they didn't want, and they were not experiencing forgiveness or assurance, so they, they're looking elsewhere. So they yearned for a Messiah. So what was their, their standard, the spiritual standard? Of all the Beatitudes, this one is the clearest statement on how to enter the kingdom. Only the pure in heart would see God in this kingdom, not those who merely participate in external religious ceremonies. Those depending on religion based on human achievement won't make it into the kingdom. So the first criteria is man's criterion. We compare ourselves 
to others. And we do it all the time. I do it and you do it. Man tends to measure himself by his fellow man. So if we're brought up short, if I'm brought up short, what I tend to do is I will find somebody on the human list that is lesser than me. But the difficulty with this is, is if you're finding somebody whose character is somehow less than yours or worse than yours, then eventually you're going to be with the dregs of humanity because this person will choose this person who chooses this person who chooses this person and pretty soon you're in the basement and you're digging because they're trying to find somebody whose character they're better than. And it doesn't take very long and you're going to be looking at the worst of humanity so that we can say we're doing pretty good. But Jesus, what is Jesus' criterion? He says he's the standard. God's standard for our acceptable character isn't if we're not a child abuser or a murderer. It's not if we're better than a tax collector or a liar, a thief or a cheat. That isn't his standard. His standard is how do you compare with a holy and righteous God? Our standards we compare to other people. God's standard is compare yourself with me. And we don't measure up real well. So there's a, there's a part here that I, want, that I want to bring up is Christ's words in the Beatitudes must have really surprised the multitudes because the multitudes, including the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, they all were very, very good at externals. They were very, very good. They were accomplished at externals because that's all they focused on. In fact, the Pharisees would get upset if certain rituals, such as hand washing, was not done right. They needed to wash in a particular way. And if you didn't wash in a particular way, you are a sinner. But they were very good at, at, at certain things. And the Lord says in Matthew 23, 23, he says, Our Lord said, you're great at tithing mint and cumin and anise. These are, these are herbs, so I've been told, that I'm not an expert at it. But they were very good at tithing 10% of the tiny leaves on these herbs. They're really, really good. But by comparison, they were ignorant of mercy, justice, and faithfulness. They were very good at taking the little leaves off these herbs and, and tithing 10%. It was all external. But then when it came to mercy, justice, and faithfulness, there was a vacuum because they didn't care. They spent no time whatsoever cultivating those particular traits. He, Jesus says, you are like white sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And when Sal and I were in, in Jerusalem, you would look over, I would say hundreds of acres, and it was a cemetery, and it was just, in places, it was just white with boxes, and these were all graves, and they looked kind of cool in an odd kind of way. I mean, they were, they were white stone, and it was, they were just absolutely lined out, and that is the, the reference that Jesus made is, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you make no effort 
for the internal. It's all external, and you look really good, just like a cemetery, but there's nobody there. And it would have been a very forceful comment. When you're standing in Jerusalem, and you say this, and it's right there, hundreds of acres, and you go, it's all dead people. There's nobody there. And he uses that as an illustration. It is amazing. So, in terms of meaning, we're talking about the Beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. We're going to take pure, we're going to look at that, and then we're going to take heart, and we're going to look at that. So, pure means single-minded, undivided. It has spiritual integrity. In fact, the, the translation of the word pure is katharos, which we get the word catharsis. Catharsis means to purge or make clean from dirt, filth, and contamination. And regarding the heart, catharsis means a purging the body of unwanted material. And in the Greek, the term was oftentimes used of, of refining metal. Is it would heat up metal, a catharsis process, where the metal would be heated up and any impurities were drained off. So the more catharsis you went through, the purer the metal would be. That was the, the usage of it at the time. And applied to the heart, the idea is that of pure motives, of being pure in heart is pure motive, single-mindedness, undivided devotion. It is spiritual integrity and true righteousness. It's all these different qualities. What is pure in heart? It's all those things that I just said. Double-mindedness has always been one of the great plagues of the church. We want to serve the Lord and follow the world at the same time. But purity pure in heart, has the basic idea of single-mindedness, pure motives, no self-interest, and completely loyal to God. The primary idea is sincerity with God. The goal of a pure in heart is to please God, and here's the deal. Purity means to please God and God alone. Being pure in heart. Now, purity is more than sincerity. The next one on your list, this is more than sincerity. We can give you three, three examples really quick. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we see Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal. And those prophets of Baal, they, they made a sacrifice, and they, they, had, they called on Baal. It said it was supposed to be from morning till noon, but it went from morning till afternoon, is Elijah started to taunt him, and it said that the, they cut themselves with knives and swords, as was their custom, and the blood flowed freely in an attempt to get the attention of the god Baal. Were they sincere? Absolutely they were sincere. Were they pure? No. No, they were absolutely sincere, there's no doubt about it. They, they were incredibly sincere. So sincerity in and of itself is not pure of heart. You have misguided people or people who are devoted. They think they're devoted. They'll, they'll walk on nails to prove their devotion and spiritual power, and others crawl on their knees for great distances, bleeding and grimacing in pain to show their devotion to a saint or a shrine. Are they sincere? You bet. You bet they're sincere. Yet their devotion is sincerely wrong and is completely worthless before God. 
One more. Look at the scribes and Pharisees, as I just mentioned. They tithed on the mint, the dill, and the cumin, but they neglected the more important parts of the law, which were justice, mercy, and faith. Were the Pharisees sincere? Absolutely they were. They had to spend years and years of instruction to learn all of the different rituals and all the different laws that they had to obey. They were absolutely sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. So you can have a person that is very sincere and is sincerely wrong. And Thomas Watson, he's, a, he's an old dead guy. Okay, That's, Those are the people we quote, are old dead guys. He says this, morality can drown a man as fast as vice. Get that? You can, be, you can be sincerely wrong morally, but it will drown you just as fast as vice, meaning if you're a crook and a deceiver and a liar and a cheat. It can drown you just as fast. He has another comment that he says, a vessel can sink with gold or with manure. Either way, you can, you can be carrying the treasures of God in your heart and it can sink, or you can be carrying something that's the opposite of the treasures of God and it can sink the vessel as well. So just because you're carrying a load, you're sincere, doesn't mean that you're pure. So we talk about the pure in heart. We've talked about pure. Now we'll talk about the heart aspect of it, because blessed are the pure in heart. Luke 6, verse 45 is a, is a how do we say it, a corner, cornerstone. It's a, a pivotal verse in the counseling world. It says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is very insightful verse because what resides in your heart, and the heart is, is always represents the inner person, the seat of motives, the attitudes, the center of personality. The heart is the center of the mind and the will. It's, it's the center of who we are. And the deal is, is, is is people, out of the overflow of their heart, the mouth speaks, they will say, well, you know, I had a slip-up this week. Or, yeah, I got angry and I said this. And, you know, it was just a mistake. No, actually, it's not. Out of the overflow of who you really are down deep, that's what comes out of your mouth. Maybe not always, maybe not habitually, but it will come out. And I use the expression of, of a, a person is like a pressure cooker. And they may keep these impurities in, okay? They're, gonna, they're out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So they're not going to say anything. They're just going to be quiet. But it's like a pressure cooker. And a pressure cooker will be on the stove for only so long, and either it will do one of two things. Either you'll flip the little lever and steam just goes, <laughs> or it will eventually blow. But either way, it's going to come out. It may take a while. In fact, it may take a long while. But either way, it's going to come out. As Jesus says regarding the heart, it is the center of the mind and the will, as well as the emotions. And what if, what if in the Beatitudes, Jesus were to have said, blessed are the pure, for they will see God. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But what if he had said, blessed are the pure, for they will see God. I think the Pharisees would have been ecstatic because they were experts at out, outward purity. But Jesus requires purity of the heart, and this nailed the religious leaders because they paid no attention to this area whatsoever. 
in total contrast to outward superficial and hypocritical religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says that it is the inner man in the core of our very being that God requires purity. Here's your trivia question for the day. Here is the trivia question of the day, is why did God destroy the earth with a flood? I'll read it to you. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's why God sent the flood, because the heart, the seat of, the, of emotions and wills, was evil all the time. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's exactly what happened way back in Genesis. So now I want to talk about, oh, I, I put in your, your outline, just the, it's thinking leads to feeling leads to behavior. That is always true. Thinking of whatever kind, whatever you're thinking about, will eventually affect your feelings, which will eventually affect your behavior. does all the time. So God wants to go straight for your thinking, which is your heart, your will, and your emotions. It's the center of who you are. And if you get that straight, that will bleed out to your feelings, that will bleed out to your behavior. So he goes right straight for the, you could call it the nervous system of the body. But I want to talk about a little bit about mask management. All of us, especially me, we all have masks. And you may get to know somebody, and you may know somebody really well, but all of us, every single one of us, will only let a person in so far. There are certain things that are in locked doors and closets of your life, and that's not always bad. That isn't always bad, but it's just true is we, have, we manage ourselves when we come here. We talk a certain way, we look a certain way, we, we give our uh, impressions to people a particular way, and we could have a pure heart or we could have a nasty heart. But we have mask management. And there are things that are in your life and things that are in my life that not everybody will, will know, ever. You could be best buddies with somebody and you'll Never tell them the deepest, darkest secrets of your life. That's called mask management. And we spend a lot of time making our outside look good. But did you know that when God looks at us, he pays very little attention to our outward appearance? Very little. It doesn't mean a whole lot. That may be hard for, for some of you, especially me. I spent 45 minutes on my hair this morning, and I hope it shows. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> Ultimately, what we look like does not really matter. In fact, there are some people, and I know, Sal, you said that you had a grandfather whose favorite was Abraham Lincoln. That was a guy that he really looked up to and studied. Abraham Lincoln once said, if I were two-faced, would I be wearing this one? <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> that was pretty clever. God looks past what we look like and even how we behave because he hones in on our heart. He looks at our heart. And what is our heart filled with? 
if you look at several passages, and I'm going to be going through them really, really quickly because some of these are very familiar with you and I don't want to belabor the point. But what, look at what God says to Samuel when a king was to be chosen. In 1 Samuel 16, it says, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In Proverbs 21, it says, All, away, all of man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. God longs to locate people who have undivided hearts. Second Chronicles 16, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's not looking for people busy in ministry. He's not looking for those who are focused on the externals. He's searching for sold-out followers who have fully committed their hearts to them. I'll do one, one more that's the opposite. In 2 Chronicles 12, it said that King Rehoboam, that he did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. And you could go through the Old Testament, there were tons and tons of kings whose heart was not fully devoted to God. So we can give you a bunch of them that were, we give you a bunch of them that were not, but you get the point. Uh, there is no hidden agenda when the heart is pure. There's no ulterior motive. The one clear objective is to glorify God and God alone. And you can look at three people, King David, you can look at Paul, you can look at the life of Jesus. They each had a pure heart. And I could belabor that, but you get the point. I don't need to go on and on about it. But I'm going to kind of wind this up a little bit before we have communion Human paths to purity. When we, when we look at the, the New Testament, we see four primary groups. We talked about them on and on. Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes. What do we have for Pharisees today? Well, we have people that have a harsh set of rules to follow in order to find favor with God and impress men. We have that today. You need to do this and this and this and this and this. And if you don't, you're lacking. That's, that's the, the, the likeness of the Pharisees today. Well, the, the Sadducees are alive and well today as well. We call it modernism. It is the opposite of legalism. They throw off scriptural standards and beliefs, and they just go, all I want to do is just love God. I don't need to know doctrine. I don't need to know theology. I just want to love God, and if you want to love God that way, that's fine. And if you want to love God this way, that's fine, too. In fact, I had a guy come up to me this week, and he says, I don't know why there's all this tension with all these different religions. He says, they all have the same God. He says, they're all doing the same thing. And I go, actually, they're not. But this isn't the place to dive into that pool. It is, it is do you know who you worship? Do you know why you worship him? Do you know what the scriptures say? It, the, the modern Sadducees are modernists. Just throw off the Bible and just do your thing, and if it feels good, it must be right. The third one are zealots. What are those today? They're activism. The only way to bring purity into the world is through political change, and we have those. And it is nauseating to me when I see somebody that thinks they know something about the Bible say something on the news, and they are so off base. I mean, it's just unreal. They say it like they have authority. And the fourth one is... The Essenes. The Essenes were the ones 
that lived way down at the south, the bottom of the map, and they separated themselves from everybody. Okay? Purity meant separation, and we have that with monasticism in some form or another, totally disengaged from society in order to be pure. The problem with that is sin resides in the heart, not just in the world. So you may go live by yourself up at Glacier, and we jokingly have said that if we could run warrants on everybody that was in Glacier, about half the population would end up in jail in Bellingham. But that was just a joke. They go up there and they get on some of these roads and they're gone. They're gone. You don't see them. They don't come around. You go up in Alaska, same thing. They go up in the brush and they disappear. They disengage. They may not do it for religious reasons, but they separate and disengage from society. Some of them to be pure. I'm going to close with this. Is it your desire to know Jesus Christ as intense as it was when David wrote, wrote Psalm 119? He said, I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. If that is your desire, then it's time to cut loose anything that is keeping you from moving forward. There was once a story, I wasn't able to confirm it, but I recently read this story about a couple from Bakersfield, California, and they were new to the marine world. And Bakersfield, California doesn't have a whole lot of water nearby. They got a lot of heat, but not a lot of water. And they bought a 22-foot boat, and they brought it to a nearby lake. It was a fairly large lake, and they, they put the boat in the water, brand new. And they, they, for the life of them, they could not get this boat to move very fast. It was just so sluggish. And it, it, they didn't know what the problem was. They fussed around with it for an hour, and they finally just putted real slowly to the marina, and they thought somebody from the marina, marina could help them. So these, these guys from the marina, they went, they went over the whole top side of the boat. They checked out everything. The, the, the motor went up and down. The prop was right. It was the right pitch. It had gas. Everything worked just, just fine. So one of the kids, he dives underwater, and he comes back up sputtering. He hardly breathes, and he's laughing so hard because they didn't take the trailer off. So... He was laughing pretty hard. So my, my question to you is, what do you have beneath the waterline that nobody can see that is preventing you from moving forward? We can't see it. I don't know it's there. Maybe nobody knows it's there, but you, in essence, have a trailer hooked to your underside, and you can't get going. It may be, it may be sin. It may be something that you're hiding behind your mask. What is it that's there? Is your heart divided? Is it undivided? Are you strapped to some sin that is slowly pulling you under? I can't answer that. But the word picture is very clear that you're not going to go anywhere with a boat if the trailer's lashed to the bottom side. The scriptures say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We're going to shift gears now. And if the, the people that are going to be helping me with uh, communion would come forward, I'm going to shift gears and we're going to start talking about the Lord's